Praise God. Welcome. Uh, good morning. How is everybody? Good. Welcome to the Internet Campus. Welcome to South Campus, West Campus, Converge. We love that you guys are here uh, worshiping with us. I am excited uh, for today for a couple of reasons. Uh, one of them, it is January 9th, so it is my wife's birthday today. So if you see Danielle Fuquay wandering around the halls, uh, please say happy birthday to her. It's a big day. I'm trying to get it to be a national holiday, but you know, government inefficiencies, they haven't gotten back to me. Uh, so hopefully that'll come through soon. Uh, the other thing is I'm excited because I get to preach Matthew chapter four with us today and dig into God's word. Uh, it's been sweet and challenging and convicting uh, for me the last couple of weeks to study this. So Matthew chapter four is where we're going to be continuing in the series going through Matthew um, as it's January 9th, I feel like if you're like me, um, January 9th is about the time you failed most of your New Year's resolutions. Uh, some of you, you haven't started them. You just said, hey, you know, we're going to start them on the 10th next Monday. Uh, some of you guys will make it through February. Some of you guys will make it all year. And to you, I say you're ridiculous. Uh, but praise God for you, and that's incredible. Uh, but there really is this season in January where we you know, a couple weeks ago, we just get very hopeful and we want to change all these things. And whether you're a New Year's resolution person or not, uh, I think inerrant within all of us is this desire to say, okay, how can we grow? How can we improve? Uh, and then we trip up and we make mistakes and we slip up and we fall back into habits. Um, my hope and my prayer out of Matthew chapter 4, what we get to see um, is we get to see a way to navigate temptation. And we get to see from Christ a way to overcome temptation. That's what uh, this passage is about. These 11 verses in chapter 4 uh, that we're going to study, we see Jesus tempted in the wilderness and we see him overcome temptation. And my hope and my prayer for us even today is that we walk out of here um, and we realize how do we apply this? How might we walk out victorious uh, from sin, from temptation, from the traps in our life that we say, no more, I want to grow out of that, I, I want to flee from that. Um, what does that look like for us or those who would say, man, I want to follow Jesus with their life? And so that's been my hope and that's been my prayer for my own soul and for this time uh, for us today. I think in order to do that, though, if you'll humor me, I want to unpack temptations as a little deeper than just failed New Year's resolutions, and so I think so often when we hear the story of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness and overcoming that, I think oftentimes it's easy to put that temptation in a category and kind of put it in a box and say, well, that's for people who are really struggling with addiction. And maybe that is you. And maybe you are in that place. And praise God, it is for you. But I also think it's so much broader than that. And the traps and the sin and the shortcoming, the shortcomings that we fall into um, are, are broad. Maybe, yes, it's addictions in our life that we have a kind, good God who says, walk away from those. Or uh, maybe it's areas of disobedience in your life. Uh, maybe it's you are tempted to sit in fear. We live in a world that is constantly tempting us to be afraid. And there's plenty of legitimate things to be afraid of. But tempting followers of Jesus to say, you should sit in that. Don't flee from it, but sit in that fear. Be anxious. Maybe you are tempted by the enemy to sit in shame because of something you've done or somewhere you've been or a part of your life where you sit in shame and you're tempted to stay there. I want us to see temptation as bigger than just um, a, a vice that we should get rid of. But it is the sin that so easily entangles everyone watching this and everyone who reads this passage. And so with those contexts 
Would we have victory in Christ? And so let's, let's jump in. To get there, we're going to have to do good old-fashioned Bible study. So Matthew chapter 4 is where we'll be. Uh, look at just the first three and a half verses with me, would you? Verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God. Let's stop right there. There's some questions we need answering, and I want to set some context and some, some setting here. Um, I, I've got a map here that shows what happened in chapter 3, just right before this, was the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist uh, in the Jordan River. And then right after that, he would have gone immediately from that baptism into the wilderness. So here you kind of see this area west of that, that Jesus would have been baptized Scene one, scene two is then he immediately goes into uh, the wilderness. And even from these verses, right, just right off the bat, there's a couple of questions I have. One, verse one. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit of God into the wilderness. And so what we see from this passage right off the bat that I have to settle and wrestle with and answer uh, if I'm going to study this passage is, is Jesus being tempted by the Spirit of God? God is. The Spirit of God is leading Christ into the wilderness where he will face unparalleled temptation and suffering in the wilderness. And so I think we ask the question, is God tempting us? And I'm a bit uncomfortable with that. The answer is no. And the answer is no. We see that in James chapter 1, verse 13. James lets us know, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. So the answer to the question of, okay, well, the Spirit is leading Jesus into this experience of suffering? Uh, is, should I be uncomfortable with that? No, God is not testing him. The tempter is tempting him, but God is running him through this test to do something incredibly important. I'll explain how those two things, tempting and testing, uh, work together in just, in just a bit. We can't ignore that fact, though. We can't ignore the fact that the Spirit is leading Christ. Uh, and it means that Jesus wasn't alone in the wilderness. It means that the wilderness is not out of God's plan. The immense suffering and temptation that Christ went through uh, wasn't this thing that happened because of the absence of God's presence. Wilderness doesn't mean no God. Which we'll get back to that in a little bit in application too. So I ask the question then, why is this story here? The story of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness, why did the author write that and, and plan it right where he did uh, in the beginning of chapter four here? And let me take 90 seconds, let me just take 90 seconds to basically walk you through the entire context of the Bible up to this chapter of scripture. Um, Genesis one and two. Genesis one and two, we see creation. Creation happens and God creates a perfect thing and he walks in relationship with his people. Genesis three happens and the fall happens. Adam who walked in the garden, was in relationship with the God of the universe, his creator, was tempted and fell. And because of that, a huge chasm in the history of our souls and life happened between God's people and this perfect and holy God. And things were broken in the fall. And then you have from Genesis chapter 4 all the way through the Old Testament, a story of God's people, the people that God in his kindness and grace said, I still love you. I am still walking with you. I have adopted you, telling this story of how our creator might redeem a broken, selfish, forgetful creation. 
And so the Old Testament is this story after story and chapter after chapter of a broken people trying to get back to this God that sin has separated us from and a gracious God bridging that gap, leading people, paving the way and calling them and reminding them of a plan that he has to ultimately redeem them, which leads all the way up to the New Testament. We get to Matthew chapter 1 and 2, which we studied, uh, which we see the birth of Jesus. The Savior is here. He shows up on the scene. We see the genealogy that all of the Old Testament has led to this and the prophecy of that. And then he goes in chapter 3 in Matthew and gets baptized. And Jesus has come. He is the one. He is our Savior. He is the one we've been waiting for. And in his baptism, the Spirit of God descends like a dove. The Father's voice is heard. And he is authorized. This is the one you've been waiting for. This is the one who will fix what was broken by Adam in the garden. This is the one. And that gets us up to Matthew chapter 3. And then immediately after his baptism, he gets up and he goes into the wilderness. That story Matthew chapter 4, where Jesus enters the wilderness, is now a baptism by fire to further authenticate that Jesus is who he said he was, that Jesus is the one we were waiting for. And so this idea that the baptism, God says, yes, you are my son, you are the one whom I'm well pleased, you are the one who will redeem God's people, a baptism by water, now he goes through these tests to prove through suffering and temptation, that he will be the one who can restore what Adam has done. And so you see this idea, Jesus authenticates that. He authenticates what was, what was broken. He, um, he validates what God said would be. And we see this new Adam then emerge Right, we see now a new and perfect Adam that Scripture talks about, and there's a comparison that I think is really, um, really worshipful, honestly, between Adam in the garden and now Christ. And I put it in your notes there. I want you to look at it. Um, you see a, a juxtaposition of Adam, who, who sin entered the world through, and the circumstances that he was in versus Christ. Adam was living in a plentiful garden. He had food everywhere. He was well-supported. I mean, he was walking with God. He was in relationship with God. He was not without anything he needed. Jesus was in a desolate wilderness. Uh, I actually, my wife and I got to go to Israel a few years back, and we actually got to go to the edge of where the wilderness is. Here's a picture that we took. I took that with my iPhone, um, and that is the wilderness. That is the Judean, that is the wilderness that Christ would have gone in. This isn't a this isn't a lush wilderness. This isn't just a, there's not a lot of civilization. No, this was a barren wasteland that Christ lived in for 40 days without food. And so Adam in a garden of plenty and, and Jesus in a desolate wilderness. Adam in Genesis 3, we see he sought to be like God. That's what Satan said. You, if you eat of this fruit, you and Eve, you will be like God. So here you have Adam seeking to be, to be God, and here you have Christ, we see in Philippians 2, Christ is God in the flesh, humbled himself to the point of man. 100% God, 100% man, but God taking on flesh and humbling himself to humanity. You see, Adam trusted what the enemy said, and you see Jesus trusted what God said. And ultimately, you see Adam yields to temptation and 
Jesus beats temptation. And so this passage and understanding why the author put it where it is, is so important for our, not only worship, but our understanding of who Christ is. This was an authentication. Jesus is the one who will redeem and bridge the gap that was broken by Adam. He's the one who overcame what Adam couldn't do. He is tested and he proves reliable. Jesus is the hero. Right? Matthew chapter 4 teaches us, shows us, Jesus is the hero of this whole story. It's, it's worshipful. It really is. Um, he is the savior of the world. Now, how? How does it authenticate, right? If, if this whole thing is about the authentication um, of Jesus, how does that actually happen? And you see that Jesus overcome, overcame what we can't and what we don't and what we didn't. He overcomes what is common to man. Uh, I love uh, John. In 1 John, he articulates uh, kind of what root sin looks like. Uh, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, he says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from this world. And so you see, 1 John even kind of articulate those three categories, the desires of the flesh, the desires or the lusts of the eyes and the lusts of the flesh, and the pride of life. Those are three broad categories that are common to everyone in this room, everyone watching, everyone listening, that at the root of all of our sin, of all the traps we fall into in disobedience or temptations that we are pulled by, at the root is those three things. It is a lust of the flesh, a lust of the eyes, a pride that is debilitating. And that is what Jesus defeats. And so let's go through these temptations quickly. Here's what he does. The tempter comes in verse 3 of chapter 4. And we're going to see this kind of core temptation and how it, how it ties this idea of the, the lusts of the flesh. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, again, asking the question, Is this really the one? If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus uses scripture to refute the temptations of the enemy. Here you have Jesus in this barren wasteland. He has the ability and the power to turn these stones into bread and satisfy what he is hungry for, food. 40 days of fasting. And Jesus uses scripture to battle, which we'll circle back around again too with that in application. But he uses scripture and he actually references there Deuteronomy 8, chapter 8, verse 3. And in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, when that verse first appears, it is this uh, Israelite um, prayer reminding themselves, uh, remembering their 40 years in the wilderness. And Jesus ties what his 40 days are a symbol of to Israel wandering in the wilderness for 40 years and that manna, bread, was coming from God. And so these lusts or these desires of the flesh, that root theme for so much sin in our life is this idea of immediate gratification. And so much of our sin is rooted in this idea of, I want to be satisfied now. I want to be satisfied now. I don't want to wait on God's timing. And so that's the temptation, temptation one, that the tempter that Satan brings before Christ. He offers Jesus that. And Jesus says, I mean, obviously he's hungry, but he says a relationship, an unbroken relationship with his father is more than bread, more valuable, more of a priority than bread. Man can't live by bread alone. He prioritizes and knows, I don't, 
I don't need this immediate gratification. Our Savior does perfectly what we often cannot do, which is deny that and say, I want an unbroken fellowship with my God. I want to be obedient to him. Temptation two, we see in verse five, six, and seven. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, and this is Satan quoting scripture, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. I think this is so fascinating. Satan here, as he's tempting Jesus for temptation to, he quotes scripture. So the enemy, the deceiver, uses scripture. And it's actually a quote from Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. And it's this passage that, that would make, it, make us believe uh, and true to believe that if Jesus chose to, he could throw himself from a, a tower and God wouldn't let him bash his even foot on the ground, that the angels would catch him. And Satan knows that. He knows scripture. And he says, hey, if you do these things, God's going to catch you. And, and Jesus pushes back. And I love this. This is really fascinating. So the verses that Satan quotes is Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. That's what's right here in the passage. Here's what verse 13 says. Listen to what verse 13, the one he does it, the one he casually and conveniently leaves out. This is what Psalm 91, 13, the very next verse would have read. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. The next verse is a verse that references the idea of Jesus, the Savior, trampling on the head, trampling on the serpent. And the trampling on the serpent is this idea that happens throughout Scripture. It's a symbol of the defeat of Satan. Right? We'll see it happen later in the garden with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, it was prophesied to Adam um, after the fall. Here he is, Satan, the devil, standing before the one who will end him. Verse 13 had to have been him. This is the one that is going to crush my head. He knows he's ultimately going to lose, but he is going to try to take as many people and do as much damage down before he does. And the enemy, I'm sure, is shaking in fear, and, and then he quotes the verses beforehand, which really play on the root desire this root temptation of the lust of our eyes. But the lust of eyes is this entitlement. That whatever we see, there's this entitlement at the root of so many of our temptations. And, and that's where this trap is set for so many of us. Um, Satan says, Jesus, you're entitled. You, you're Jesus, and you just, this baptism and this big thing and the Spirit of God fell on you. You're a big deal. So you're entitled for God to protect you. God won't let you get hurt. Take that license. He works for you. He has to protect you. So why don't you test him? And Deuteronomy 6, what Jesus replies is just this other command reminding even the Israelite people in Deuteronomy 6 that while they were complaining in the wilderness, don't test God. They were complaining, give us bread, give us water, give us more meat. We're going to go back to Egypt. We should go back to slavery. God, you're, you're not meeting our needs. We're entitled for this. God provide, God save, and save us on our timeline. A core part of this temptation, all mankind is prone to, is this idea that, man, this thing's about me. Right, that this thing is about me. 
I'm the center of this universe. And God is an accessory in my life. God is an accessory in my life to help me, to protect me, to to help bless me, to help create circumstances that are good for me. And obviously I'll then do my part and give him my head nod. Um, But we are the center. And Jesus, who is 100% God and 100% man, shows us the model here in Matthew 4 that no, no, you are God. You are the center of the universe. It revolves around you. I will not test you. That's amazing. That is powerful and beautiful. God is the creator and man is the creation. And and God is the point of story of this, this story in history. He will provide, but in his timing, and then we get to trust, not demand from a place of lust of the eyes of God, give me this thing. We say, oh man, I want that. I desire that. Give that to me. And that is broken. And yet it's common. It is common to all of us. That is common to all of us. Yet Jesus was victorious over it. Third temptation. Third temptation and and final temptation. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Again, Jesus uses scripture consistently against temptation. Uh, He quotes here again uh, Deuteronomy 6. And we see here this pride of life, this me-centered, my glory, my kingdom, and really the pride of life and the lust of eyes, those could be interchangeable between these two temptations. Um, but, but we certainly see this idea of pride. Satan says this kingdom, all of these kingdoms, this worldly kingdom can all be yours. Just say the word. And Satan, who is the ruler of that broken world, says, okay, you're the one, I'm going to give it to you. In my timing, I'm going to give it to you. And what's so interesting is why did Jesus come? Right? Why did Jesus come to the earth? He came to restore what had been broken. He came to seek and save the lost. But he came not eight verses from now in Matthew. Next week, I'm sure we'll cover this idea that the sermon that Jesus preaches right off the bat is this idea of bringing about the kingdom. He's here. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is here. And here, Satan is saying, hey, let's just, let's just do the Cliff Notes version of this. I'll just give you the kingdom now. Take it now. You can have it. That's what you came for. The kingdom of heaven is here. And and I'll just give it to you now. And we don't have to go through all this stuff. And you don't have to suffer. And you don't have to ups and downs of that. I'll just give it to you now. He could have had it. He could have shortcut that. But he doesn't. And there's a, a couple of things that that shows us. One, it shows that he obeys and trusts the Father and the Father's timing and the Father's plan. He's not willing to take shortcuts to get those things. He says, I'm going to do this the way God has destined to do this. And that might be significantly harder. But also, um, I, I was talking about this passage uh, with Cody um, earlier this week. And he, he pointed out this observation. It stuck with me since Tuesday when we were chatting about this. Um, he could have had it then, right? And, and why doesn't he? I think there's a, a really a really good place to say it's because he didn't want to leave us behind. 
right? He, he takes the kingdom there. He, he doesn't make disciples. He doesn't go to the cross. He just is Jesus and he inherits the kingdom. And he gets to start this kingdom. But then he doesn't, he would have left us behind. And I really love the compassion, I think, behind this of I want to obey, but also I don't want to leave these people that God has given me and put on my heart and the people that God cares about. I don't want to leave them behind. I want to bridge the gap between those people. And let's be clear and honest who those people are. Lost, sinful, ungrateful, undeserving people. That's who he says, I don't want to leave them behind. It's not just the damsel in distress. It's no, these are people who are betraying me, but I don't want to leave them behind. That's my story. That's the hero I am. I want to bridge that gap for those people. And I love that. Christ came and he was tempted in, the, in these core ways of, of the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. And he is victorious at every step. And he is bridging this gap between a broken people and a perfect God. If there's a huge cavern and someone decides that they're going to build a bridge, you know, let a train go across this cavern. You got train tracks going and you just have a massive gorge and you got to get across it. You get engineers out there and they start building the trellises and the pillars and all of the things to make this thing go. And then you run the track. And then supposedly people are supposed to trust that they're going to sit on a really heavy locomotive and just go across a huge gorge, right? Why would someone trust that? Why would somebody believe, yeah, you know, this seems like a good idea, a train full of people and luggage and weight speeding across a gorge that some guys built? Why would you trust that? How do you know it's trustworthy? How do you know that bridge is gonna actually hold? Here's how you know. The engineer goes, and he gets in a train, and he drives the train across the track. That's how you validate that bridge. That's how you authenticate. That's how you build trust. That's how you show we built this. This is the pathway across the gorge. What separated this huge gap, the bridge has been built. And then Christ comes and he goes through all of these tests that are common to man, that we fail, every one of us, and he goes across all of them victoriously. Bridging the gap, showing us he is the hero. He is the authentic point of the story. He is the one who came to redeem, church. One more question. In my last nine minutes, one more question. So what? Right? So what does that mean for us? 2,000 years ago, we believe, I believe, our God showed up in the person and work of Jesus Christ and was victorious over sin that we are not and bridged a chasm so that we might be connected to a perfect God who we don't deserve being connected through Christ on that train and that train alone. How does that help me tomorrow morning? Honestly, that he, great, was victorious over temptation. That's a great story. But how does that help me get freed, you get freed from sin and shame or fear or habits, or addictions, how does that set me free? Three things I want you to hold on to. Three things I want you to apply, that I want to apply in my heart, for us to walk out of here and say, God, would we be changed? Would we grow? Would we see this, not just as a great story, where we see Jesus exalted and we worship, but would we see this as a way to apply to us? And the first is don't lose this perspective. Don't lose this perspective that you have an authenticated Savior who has already won.
We've got the Savior who has already won. Remember, the hero was led into the wilderness by the Spirit of God. Remember that perspective, that it was Christ, it was God's Spirit that led him in there. So there's a few things we see. One, we see that our God is relatable. And so you, tomorrow morning or tonight when you go home or you get in your car and you think, this is great, but I'm still being tempted constantly and I don't know how to get free of it. And there's still these things that are constantly trying to pull me and trap me away from the life abundant that Christ has called me to walk victoriously. Hold on to the perspective that you have a Savior who knows what that's like. We don't pray and reach out to a God who is distant and doesn't understand our suffering. We pray and reach out and trust and get on board and surrender to a God who is absolutely relatable, who knows our suffering, who knows what it's like to suffer, knows what it's like to be victorious also. But also, we see that our suffering and our temptation is not evidence that God has left us. It's oftentimes evidence that God is shaping us. And sometimes the temptation in our life is, the suffering in our life is because we have made bad decisions and we have sowed in seeds, but also sometimes it's because God led us into a wilderness to shape us. And so the fact that the Spirit of God led Jesus into the wilderness, I think should encourage us that he battles with us. He battles with us. Just because we're going through hard times doesn't mean that God is still not with us and leading us. Christ is not the bringer of good circumstances and and Satan the bringer of hard circumstances. Christ is the shaper of us into his image. And he loves us enough to shape us by whatever means necessary. And some of those are going to be hard and they're going to be suffering, and they're going to be temptation, and they're going to be things that we have to lean on community or lean on accountability so we might grow into who he is and who we are in light of that. That is life and life abundant. Not about convenient circumstances, not about comfortable circumstances. During our battle, during your battle with suffering and temptation, I want to encourage you, don't lose perspective. If you're in that battle and you don't see Christ, look harder. He is there. The Spirit has not abandoned you if you are in Christ. Second, don't lose hold of biblical truth. And this is so good, obviously. Um, We don't lose sight of the perspective that he is the victor who has already won. He is the authorized victor over sin, but also we are given these tools of biblical truth. Jesus does it, right? He uses scripture to battle uh, the lies of the enemy. And the difference between just understanding, okay, good, Jesus is the victor and I can trust this good God, um, and then also biblical truth, those two application points are, they complement each other, but they're pretty seismic. Um, Let me explain it this way. If I am a a football player for, we'll say Alabama, and I know that probably triggers people in this room uh, and online. But if, if I'm a football player for, for Alabama, that organization, if I stick around long enough, I'm probably going to win a championship. I'm probably going to get a lot of wins. I'm probably going to be very victorious by being on that team. And so if I'm on that team, then yes, there's a perspective I would have of, hey, I am a part of Alabama's football program. There's a good chance that once every at least two years, I'm going to win something big. That's great. But that doesn't mean you know the playbook. That doesn't mean you don't need to study how we battle. And so if you walk out of here and you say, well, great, I'm on team Jesus. He is the victor and that's what I'm going to walk away with. That is important. But then you also got to know the place. 
You got to know who he says you are. You got to be in scripture. You got to wrestle with this so that you, yes, know that you are his, but also know how to get in the game. Know how to avoid tackles or whatever it is that that analogy now breaks down at. That's what this is. We need to know the word of God. This is our tool. This tells us who we are. And these verses aren't about Christian spells that we say. I want to be real clear. This isn't, oh man, I'm being tempted, so let me recall a verse and I'll say it to the enemy like an incantation and the enemy will flee. No, that's not how I use scripture. It's not a spell that I cast so that bad thoughts will go away. I use scripture because it, it reminds me who I am. It's about identity. It reminds me who I am because I'm forgetful and my heart is forgetful and I'm prone to these sin patterns and lust of the flesh and lust of the eyes and pride of life. And scripture reminds me, oh yeah, the enemy tells me I'm this, but I'm not. And so when I memorize scripture as a tool to battle temptation, it's I'm preaching to myself. I'm not just saying a, a verse so that bad thoughts will go away. I'm preaching to myself so I would remember. Right? If I'm stuck in fear and anxiety, and I'm stuck there, and I just can't get out of my head all of the things that I need to do or haven't done or the things that I'm worried about, and there's plenty of categories where that list can get full really fast of things to be afraid of. Then all of a sudden, I look at Philippians 4, verse 6 and 7 as an example, as one of the many examples to not be afraid. And okay, do not be anxious about anything, Paul says, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known, made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, in that victorious person and work of Christ Jesus. And so, see, I use scripture as a way to remind myself of, wait, this anxiety that I'm focused on, God, that's not what you've called me to do. You've called me to flee from that, and you've called me to do some other things in response, like have a thankful heart. Not what am I anxious about, but what can I start being thankful for? If I'm tempted to go back into sin, Maybe there's a vice or an addiction. Maybe I use 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you, Paul says there. That is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. See, I need scripture to remind me of truth. So when I stand in those places of temptation, we need scripture as that tool to be equipped so we might know who we are and know whose we are. And then lastly, I want you to hear this. I want you to hold on to this perspective that Jesus is the hero. He's done it. He is relatable. He knows your suffering. I want you to hold on to biblical truth, making that your weapon. But also I want you to hold on to hope. Hold on to hope. Verse 11 at the end of this story, the last verse here in the wilderness. Then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. You see this sweet, victorious ending. He, he withholds temptation. And angels come and they minister to him. You too, listen to me, you too. Refreshment, victory. It is there for those who are faithful. I don't know what the timeline looks like, but it is there. It is there. And if you feel like, if you feel like you hear this, and you hear a sermon about temptation and, and tools and ways um, to, to flee from temptation and to battle and to have victory in temptation, you think the sermon doesn't apply to me because I am too far gone. I have wandered too far already. This is, 
My life is, I'm no longer battling temptation. I have succumbed to it. Listen to me, if that is you, you are still believing a lie. You are, you are being tempted and buying into the lie that the enemy would want to bury you in shame. You are not too far gone. All of script, so much of scripture testifies to this idea. Romans 5, that as sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, you are a new creation. The old has gone. I don't feel new. Well, your feelings are lying to you then, if you are in Christ. If you're in Christ, your feelings are lying to you. Believe God's word over what the tempter might tell you. If you're in Christ, you are a new creation. That is the grace of God. That is the kindness of God. Hold on to hope. Don't believe the lie that you have gone too far. There's too much temptation. And if you have never experienced that grace of God, if you're not in Christ, you've tried religion and you've tried doing churchy things and Christian things and you like Jesus, but you've never submitted to the one, the victor, God has been an accessory for you, maybe a great and beneficial accessory, but your life doesn't revolve around him, he revolves around you, then today find freedom once and for all. Find freedom. You have a God who bridged the chasm that is in your life and in your soul, whether you know it or not. Run to this gracious God who says, I am the only way for you to have victory. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ has paved the way. And you have a God before you who says, will you believe? Will you surrender to that truth? Not check a box, but would you put your faith in Christ to drive you across that bridge? Let me pray. Father, we love you and we are so grateful for how you love us. God, the gospel that saves us, the gospel that redeems what is broken in mankind, in all of us. Would we never lose sight of it, God? Would we continue to stare at it and look at it and fall in love with a God who loves us even when we don't deserve it? Help us find victory. Help us identify the traps in our life and find victory from them as you have done. For your glory, always for your glory. In the name of Jesus, amen.